the night. I am Matt Laswitz, and welcome back to Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman story ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our ever-growing list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. And before we go any further, let's introduce said co-host. Will, how's it going, my friend? It is going well. I'm, again, getting into the groove of this, our 32nd episode. I'm feeling good, feeling comfortable. And, and let me say out there to the listeners, you guys have no idea how much work my friend Matty Lasers puts into this podcast. His planning and diligence is just, it's amazing. He's got, he's got so many episodes all planned out. I, I actually put together one this week. I was, I was so excited. I was so proud. I sent him a message. Oh, oh I, I, I put, I put one episode in our planning document, you know, and he has like 75 all lined up and ready to go. So I, I, I'm going to say this and all of our episodes have this kind of theme together. And we go over the themes as we're planning the episodes. And of course, my little pea brain sometimes forgets the themes. I'm reading the, uh, you know, the books for this week, and I have such a Leonardo DiCaprio meme from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood moment as I am figuring out the theme this week. And I could feel myself getting so excited. It's like, oh, 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 I know what these books are about. And of course, we have already talked about what these books are about. So to make a long story short, I am a moron. Uh, well, you're not a moron. I think we've had this discussion in our Slack this week. I work in IT. My moron bar is set real low. And even if it wasn't, you're not a moron. But, but you know, it, it was also fun figuring out the theme again, because it gave me not only a once upon a time in Hollywood feel, but a... $25,000 pyramid feel too. Cause yeah, that's, that's the most exciting 60 seconds in, uh, in game shows and figuring out what three things have in common. That's some exciting shit. Damn right. For those of you out there, you're not going to have to wait till the end. Cause we are going to tell you what that theme is this week. We're going to be looking at three stories that focus on my personal favorite aspect of the dark knight which is batman as detective these stories for a character that is called the dark knight detective are fewer and further between than you'd think because detective stories are a lot harder to write than your usual superhero knock them out not that all of these are the strictest mysteries but we'll get to more of these over you know the years because i love me some detective stories Let's let's go through these and let's see just how they stand up as Batman as detective stories. Our first story of the night is Blades. This is from Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, issues 32 to 34. The writer is James Robinson. The artist is Tim Sale. Colors by Steve Olaf. Letters by Willie Schubert. Editor is Archie Goodwin and Bill Kaplan. And this was published from June to August of 1992. I have a real soft spot for this story. Robinson and Sale are, this is the first story I read from either of those two creators who are both creators whose work I have come to really love. And again, this is one of these stories that I read when it was first released back in 1992. So this is my first revisit to it in a a long time. I've read it a few times, but it's been a while. So And, Will, this is your first time on this one, right? Yes, sir. So 
what were your feelings on this one to, to start? So another thing to say up here at front, we both have a soft spot for Legends of the Dark Knight. Absolutely. Not not just the the, the current volume, the third volume. I started reading comics uh, in the middle of the, the second volume. I loved getting those. I think it was Friday or maybe it's Friday now. Whenever it was during the second volume, those digital hits, you know, five, six, you know, short little pages you could read in a sit in, uh, in a sitting. And they were just, I just loved them. I looked forward to reading them. And so again, a real soft spot for the series. I love anthologies generally. We need more of them. Legends is the first book that I read from issue one. I started a little into it. I got issues like one through four at one go. But after that, I read this book every month as it came out until the end. I, I've done that with a lot of series since, but Legends will always have, you never forget your first. <laughs> and of course, it's got the best variant covers in uh, comic book history. Yes, yes. I had the yellow one. i think uh, i think i have got a yellow one too that all being said i'll be nice uh, because you're my friend this is one of your loves it 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 didn't it didn't hit for me that's Um, we're not going to agree on every story and that's a good thing it means that we'll there'll be some real discussion back and forth about what we liked and what we didn't versus the two of us just agreeing on everything which is also fun but let's see what we get here my central complaint, and this is the same complaint I have with Tim King's uh, Gotham, Gotham Girl, Batman, to my mind, should be skeptical as hell of anyone who shows up in Gotham and says, I'm a superhero. I'm going to be good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you clean up the city. I think Batman should basically look at them as a crook and a fraud until proven otherwise. And the dynamic in this book is really weird for me because the whole premise of this is that Batman gets preoccupied with a serial killer who's targeting old people. And that's the big mystery that while we're talking about it this week, but the most time and attention in this book is spent on you know, this, uh, this swashbuckler character, the Cavalier. Technically absolutely. the second Cavalier, as there was a Cavalier in the Golden Age as well. He is like a, you know how usually you hear A through like D list? The Cavalier is like an F list, that <laughs> villain. He, he is not a well-regarded villain. This is not the same guy. I mean, he's popped up occasionally, usually in like big groups of villains, like when the entire... Secret Society of Supervillains has been gathered. He's fourth row from the back, sandwiched in between Crazy Quilt and the Shark. Not even King Shark, just the Shark. Or Great White Shark. Just the Shark. But the Cavalier's big plan, big plan, is that he's a he's a stuntman. And he's going to be this hero. And he's going to win all of this acclaim. And then he's going to unmask and now this stuntman will have leading parts. And I'm reading it the whole time thinking, you a stunt motherfucker. If you, could, if you could act, you would be an actor. But that's just me. It's funny. Once upon a time in Hollywood, stuntmen. There you go. Uh, wow. Making connections. To me, 
and we can talk more about like the the logical holes there're just too many leaps here like it's a comic book it's batman i will grant a bunch of things but this this story just had too many of them for me our sister of sorts podcast battle of the atom which i willingly admit i blatantly stole this format from uh hosted by comics xf editor-in-chief zach jenkins and adam Reck. they have a thing that they say every story gets one leap there's one thing that you just have to kind of like to make the story work yeah i can accept that one thing it sounds to me like to you well this one had more than just the one thing you had to just kind of shrug and accept yeah it's the whole idea of batman not being able to focus on more than one thing this this mysterious killer mr lime mr lime mr lime mr lime his grand plan just again spoiler spoiler for a 30 year old comic mr lime turns out to be uh, a guy who killed his parents for what insurance fraud inheritance yeah same thing same thing and then he just starts killing a whole bunch of other old people to cover up the fact that he killed his parents and batman figures it out because all of the other people who were killed were done from from range and this guy's parents were the only ones who were killed up close and batman's like aha aha i have i have deduced the uh, the, the mystery and um okay i got to just step in on that particular point because again this might have been at 12 when i read this i hadn't read anywhere near as much detective fiction as i have read now and what it was was Encyclopedia Brown and Classics Illustrated Sherlock Holmes and other Batman. Hey, Encyclopedia Brown was the shit. I, I enjoy it. I actually found the, the first one in a used bookstore not too long ago. And it's like, these actually still kind of hold up. These are fun. But that particular kernel of detective fiction wisdom holds up. That is one thing that has come in handy reading other detective fiction since. The anytime you've got multiple crimes... The one that breaks the pattern is the bit of evidence that the detective is going to need or use to solve the case. I'm not saying that that makes it unassailable, but it's a neat little point for detective fiction. Fair. Fair. Rereading this, the art, I love Tim Sale. And this is really, it's, it's not quite as exaggerated as his stuff will get. It's not quite long Halloween, the joke, the couple of images of the Joker, he's not quite as snaggletoothed, but it's smooth. Part of this also goes to the colors. I got to give Steve Olaf a lot of credit. There's a lot of black and white here. And especially when you get into the last issue, there's a whole flashback sequence of black and white with blood, just the red of blood throughout it. I kind of wish this whole story had been sort of a proto Batman black and white with just spot color here and there, the Cavalier's mask, the hair of the woman who he tries to save and thus ruins his life, bits and pieces like that. I think that actually might've made this even a little bit cooler than the sort of muted colors throughout. I will say that one part of this that I thought was really neat is the emotional tie to, to Zorro. That I thought was a nice character moment. And, you know, Batman musing that 
This guy helps me remember the good times, even though that was a moment that he probably shouldn't look back all that fondly on. And it's a slightly different design for the Cavalier. The original Cavalier was very much a Scarlet Pimpernel, Three Musketeers outfit. So here to make him more Zorro-y was very intentional to evoke that bit of emotion. A lot of this is playing with noir tropes. One of the complaints I would say I have is that it doesn't take the noir tropes as far as they sh- as Robinson should have. If he was going to make this a noir, he should have pushed the, the envelope all the way. The Cavalier winds up going bad in the end because he saves a woman from committing suicide. And it turns out she's being blackmailed by this snooty blackmailer who has evidence that she killed her abusive husband. And in a full-on noir, she would have been a femme fatale. And she's not. She's just a victim. And it would have worked a little better for me if in the end it turned out that the husband wasn't abusive. She killed him for the insurance money. It would have created a parallel between her and Lime. And it would have given the Cavalier that sort of classic noir hero tragic ending versus him in the end committing suicide by cop because his plan has been ruined and he doesn't want to go to jail. The The ending is the weakest bit of this story to me anyway now i i like the ending because i thought it was a a bold choice for 92 in uh, death by cop and it's just not something we see in in dc comics very often like somebody choosing to be gunned down by the police that's and you're right i probably going back i remember being so shocked by it when i read it back in 92 that it didn't strike me as much now i guess partially because i saw it coming and partially because we've seen that beat done not in comics but in media so many different times it's that's an interesting point i hadn't really thought about i I hadn't thought about it in the context i will say this is also as with a lot of those first hundred or so issues of legends of the dark knight early in batman's career Gordon is still Captain Gordon here, and we're pre-Robin. So we're somewhere in the between the end of year one and year three range. So it does give a little more credence to Bruce's obsession and the fact that his obsession with Lyme has to do with him seeing, now granted older than he was, but orphans. That's what he's seeing people who've lost their parents. So it is hitting a particular personal note for him. And he hasn't had years of watching the Joker massacre numerous people or he probably hasn't lost Harvey Dent yet. He hasn't been steeped in all that tragedy. So he would probably be a little more shocked by some of this stuff at this point. That's a good point. I, I hadn't thought about that. Although there is a nice reference to just kind of where this is in the timeline when Gordon just kind of muses after Batman has run into this burning building and to his mind, you know, died inside. Gordon's like, oh, huh. kind of wish he had stuck around a little bit longer. Oh, well, guess we'll find somebody else. Yeah, I did like Robinson's 
portrayal of both Gordon and Alfred. This is a snarky, lovingly snarky Alfred, which are often the best Alfreds. I have a real soft spot for this story. And while there are bits of it that don't work as well in retrospect, I still think there's something to it. Also, Batman rides in the Whirly Bat, one of the early golden age sort of one man helicopter thing which is an, was something from the golden age that it's like every now and then it just pops up again it's like oh somebody remembered that there was a whirly bat at one point or another oh so unless we have anything else to to add i think it's time to put this one on our big list time to put it on the board so right now we have nine stories on our list uh, story one is batman year one Right in the middle is, at story five, is Superman speeding bullets, the Elseworlds where Kal-El becomes Bruce Wayne. And in the number nine spot is the last Batman story from Batman number 300. So where do we want to put this? I'm leaning higher. I'm not, you know, saying top of the list by any stretch, but somewhere in the, around those Elseworlds, whether it's a I'm saying a little above, but I could I could deal with working it down in that area. I'm just I'm here nodding along. I I think your gut is right. You have talked me a a little up on it. I say Gotham by Gaslight in our our seven spot is right about where I just start to loathe uh, these books. (laughs) And. I am not quite loathing on Blades. I'm so, I'm so disappointed again by Gotham by Gaslight, especially as we see you know some of these same elements used in another story we're going to talk about tonight, uh, which I liked a whole lot better. Okay, so it's de- we're definitely going to be above Gotham by Gaslight. Yes. Uh, what about Holy Terror? I think this is more compact. Its ideas aren't as wild as Holy Terror, but it has a more logical character arc than the somewhat, the, the, there aren't the same leaps of character logic as there were in Holy Terror that there are here. The Cavalier gets a decent bit of characterization and he, most of his journey makes sense. I also, as much as I love Norm Brayfogle, I really love this Tim Sale art. And in a point that I, I, I wanted to make last week, but I totally forgot, in Blades, Bruce Wayne does not mention Jihad, which yeah. was a cringy, cringy. Yeah, I, I read that line. Yep, I was like, oh, dear. I mean, this oh, no. is 1991. Oh, no. So the context, it's still a poor use of that word, but the context was not quite as loaded as it would be a decade or so later. So I think we're, we're above Holy Terror. Does it beat Speeding Bullets? Ooh. Joker Luther. My first instinct is in between Zero Year and Speeding Bullets, but I could be talked into between Speeding Bullets and Holy Terror. Joker Luther is a very good point. Again, there my point with this is that there isn't that weird jumps of character logic that we got in speeding bullets. That's right. Because we had smooth Bruce Clark and psychopath Bruce, super Batman. 
and he changes on it. Lois, you know, just says to him, Batman scares me. He's like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to be a better guy now because I don't want to scare her. There is a more consistent character arc in Blades, and that speaks to me. When's your birthday, Matt? Uh, it is just about a month from now. Oh, how nice. Well, this is going to be my early present to you. <laughs> then we shall put it in between zero year from Batman Volume 2 at number four and Superman Speeding Bullets at number six. This Our new number five will be Blades. Our next story is the what I'm going to try to do our sort of pre-1986. Actually, this is right in that 1986-1987 range before the, the crisis and before Gear 1 changed everything about Batman in continuity. Uh, this is the Doomsday Book from Detective Comics number 572. The writer is Mike W. Barr. The pencilers, and there's a few here because this is a double-sized actually close to triple-sized anniversary issue with multiple chapters, each by a different artist. The pencils are by Alan Davis, Terry Beatty, or Beatty, Carmine Infantino, E.R. Cruz. The inks are by Paul Neary, Dick Giordano, Al Vey, and E.R. Cruz. There is a gatefold centerfold in the middle with art by legendary Batman artist Dick Sprang. The colors are by Adrian Roy and Carl Gafford. Letters by John Workman, Romeo Francisco, and Todd Klein, edited by Denny O'Neill, and the book was published in March of 1987. This book was released for the 50th anniversary of the release of Detective Comics number one. Thus, it features three different detectives who had all been introduced in Detective Comics. Slam Bradley, who made his first appearance in Detective Comics number one, Batman, and Ralph Dibney, the elongated man. It's a story where a case brings all three of these detectives from Gotham and then to London, where granted Ralph already was, and has them involved to stop a scheme by the great nephew of Professor Moriarty. And by the end, they meet the greatest detective in historical literature and the public domain, Sherlock Holmes. It's big, it's wild, it's got some real 80s-ness to it, and it's clear Barr is a just huge detective story geek, and it's, again, got a soft spot for this one. Where are we on this one, Will? This thing is charming as fuck. I'm going to say it's trying to do a lot and telling all of these stories across two continents, across all of these characters, different time periods. And it is really smooth. There's not some big jarring moment when you go from chapter to chapter and artist to artist. It all has the same kind of feel. The narrative more or less works pretty well together. Um, you can read chapters individually and you can read them all as one issue. And I just, I just thought this was really, really neat. As an anniversary issue, I love the concept. As something you can just crack open and read, I think it works pretty well. I am, uh, I'm really bullish on this. Mike Barr, who wrote this issue, is, as I said, a mystery nerd. Other than probably is most famous for creating Batman and the Outsiders. He was the original writer on Batman and the Outsiders. So thus is the co-creator, I believe, of 
Katana and Halo and Geoforce and did a lot of work with Black Lightning and Metamorpho and Batman. But for me, he wrote uh, an indie series in the 80s and 90s that I discovered many years later because I was very young at that point. And so if it wasn't superheroes, I wasn't reading it. But he wrote a series called Maze Agency, which was a detective series about a mystery writer and the head of a, a detective agency who were dating and they had quirky dialogue and every issue was a done in one play fair mystery. So this is a guy who knows his detective stories. This one isn't the most detective-y story. I mean, there's a lot of superhero to this, but there are some clear mystery beats to it. This is in the middle of Barr's very short run on detective that he did mostly with alan davis that ran from detective 569 through 577 i should have written this down beforehand the last three issues of which were not by david it's 578 excuse me that were not by art by Davis. The last three were art by a very young Todd McFarlane. And those last four issues are Batman year two. Barr's Batman is a little controversial within Batman fan circles as his Batman is both at times a bit goofy and at times a bit lethal. There is a panel in this issue where he flat out uses a man as a human shield to get shot by one of his compatriots and it's in the first chapter when he's helping save slam bradley from a group of british or irish thugs i assume they were british until they start assuming they're with the ira which is very 80s shit i did not even notice that wow he he straight up pulls a guy into a a bullet wow yeah wow yeah bars batman is a bit much that's why batman year two is gun wielding batman but it's the whole point where he starts to wield the gun and then realizes by the end of the story that he shouldn't. We will talk about year two sometime. It is buck wild. And, and, and this is on the same page where you have stereotypical Batman 69. I, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Batman, that's, that's oh something my. entirely different. Woo! Uh, Batman 66, Robin wordplay. Wow, that is tonally weird this and i just picked up on it wow this is pre-crisis jason todd where jason todd is basically just a flat-out clone of dick grayson pre-crisis they have pretty much the same origin jason was the son of circus performers whose family were killed in this in that particular case by killer croc and who went to live with batman and then the crisis happened, like, we really should give him an origin that makes him a distinct character, which was a good idea, except they made him sort of a mean little punk who nobody liked. But that's for a discussion for when we get to that story. And a discussion for Damien. Yeah, that too. But this, this is a fun story. I like all three, oh, well, four when you count Holmes, detectives in this story. I mean, Batman, kind of obvious. But Slam Bradley is a character who you really come to appreciate when you get around to reading Ed Brubaker's run on Catwoman, where Bradley is a regular character. 
And I love Ralph Dibney. The shame is you don't get to see his wife, Sue, here because the two of them are modeled after Nick and Nora Charles of The Thin Man, that bantering detective duo. That's an archetype that I really, really enjoy. Ralph is kind of fun here as the comic, the stretchy comic relief versus the more serious Batman and the grizzled noir detective that is Slam Bradley. Oh, we need more Slam Bradley stories. Absolutely. Let's give Slam the backup and detective for a while. The Brubaker and Darwin Cook did the search for Selena Kyle four-part backup that led into Catwoman, which was a Slam Bradley story. That's a great story. I read that because you suggested it, and yeah, it was real good. It's real good. That stuff holds up. This is a very interesting little story. I mean, there are some some very 80s moments. The IRA stuff is right out of a lot of 80s literature. The fact that somehow the decision, Moriarty's great plan involves stealing a nuclear missile and blowing up Buckingham Palace and the Queen with it. This is not a story that takes itself terribly seriously, which is fine. Barr does a decent Holmes pastiche in one of the chapters. It has dialogue that is practically lifted out of some of those Sherlock Holmes stories. Some words are changed, but I've read that canon. Yeah, I recognize that line. I recognize that particular reference. And that's fine when you've got a 10-page comic short story. With a public domain character. Yes. They hit as many of the public domain Holmes elements as they can. You've got Watson, you got your Moriarty, Lestrade shows up. He hits all the the high points, the well-known points of a Sherlock Holmes story in there. And I really like that chapter, and not just because, but at no point does Holmes say Moriarty. He's he's still trying to figure this out. He references the secret hand guiding events. And I'm thinking the whole time, Oh, wow. This reminds me so much of Batman Eternal, where Batman has spent like, you know, 50 issues looking for the secret hand who's guiding everything. And man, now I just want to write a home story where he spends a whole book looking for the the, the evil force behind everything. And, and the, the punchline is, it's just fate. It's just happenstance. It's just a random chance in a cruel world. How you like that? There is potential there. This is a a good book. This is a book. This was the first wall book I ever bought. The first time, you know, those those slightly more expensive or sometimes much more expensive comics that a a comic shop keeps on on its wall. I saw this book when I went into a comic shop and it was $15, which for an 11 year old back in 1991, that was money. That was okay, I'm going to just buy the Batman issues that I came in here to buy, and I'm not going to buy one or two other random comics so I can save up for a few weeks so I can buy that $15 comic that has Batman and Sherlock Holmes on the cover. That cover's good. It's a great cover. It's a very distinct cover. And Barr, again, shows his Sherlock Holmes nerdness when Holmes shows up and he makes reference to you know various aspects of, of his longevity having to do with the uh, the royal jelly of certain bees and Holmes retired to be a beekeeper in Tibet in Tibet this is also by the way not the only story in the DC universe where Sherlock Holmes shows up he has pop up in a few other places over the years 
Other stories have used Holmes analogs, which is a little weird when Holmes is in the public domain. But I guess you do have a certain amount of baggage that you get when it's actually Sherlock Holmes versus using a Holmes analog. Looking at you, Gotham by Gaslight, you could have fucking used Holmes. It is interesting. When Alan Moore was talking about writing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and this is, I haven't been able to find this. I read this in an interview and I need to find the interview. He said that he would never use Sherlock Holmes or Dracula because the minute either of those characters appear in a story, that story then becomes about either Sherlock Holmes or Dracula. You can use the characters around them. That's fine. But those two figures suck the air out of a story and it becomes about them. And honestly, that is often the case with Batman. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, you drop Batman into a story and or the Joker, and that becomes a story about one of either of those two characters. It's hard to be another character in those stories as there's just such commanding presence and history to them. The other thing that I do kind of wish we'd gotten, and it probably wouldn't have worked with the story, because it would have been way too science fiction-y. But the other great detective character who made his first appearance in Detective Comics was Martian Manhunter. And it I, I would have liked a little Martian Manhunter cameo in there as just a, a reference, even if it was Ralph calling the Justice League and being like, hey, you know, John, any chance you can get me in touch with bats? Just as to, to keep a reference to that full 50-year history of Detective Comics. I also like Martian Manhunter. Again, if these are the quibbles I have with this book, this is a pretty great book. Sherlock Holmes interacting with Martian Manhunter would have been something. It would have been a very interesting juxtaposition, wouldn't it? Yes. I would have loved to have seen the deductions Holmes makes based off of the human appearance that Martian Manhunter has, and then he changes shape and Holmes is just flabbergasted. That would have been fun. Well, I don't believe you're from here, are you? <laughs> Your accent is clearly manufactured. So I think we've talked this one to that point where it's time to, to put it on the board. Okay. So where do we stand with this one versus our last story? Where does this one stand against Blades? So I think our top four year one batman annual number two dark knight returns zero year are kind of a mix of stories that are good or stories that are significant or stories that we feel are just kind of important the middle are just kind of interesting stories and then the bottom stories are duty i think this really straddles that line between interesting and important and or good and it's probably closer to the important and or good side of things yeah i can see dropping this one blades immediately goes from number five to number six with the doomsday book as the new number five i'm even a little bit higher on it than that because it's so charming like if if this comic was a person i'd give it a big hug and i'm not a hugger okay I can get with that. I mean, again, 50th anniversary. This is the story where Batman meets Sherlock Holmes. Literature's two greatest detectives appear on page together. That's a big fucking deal. 
That is a huge deal. So are we thinking between three and four? Are we thinking this is the new number four? This is going to bump zero year down a slot. You know what? I'm not super crazy about zero year. So yeah, I'm good with that. I, I can, I can get behind that. I can absolutely get behind that. So our new number four is the doomsday book from detective comics. 572. So now we, we've gotten through the our first two stories. For our final story, we have something that is one of the more recent stories that we've done. Not the most recent. That's still the, the Batman Annual 2 and Zero Year. But this is still a pretty recent Oh, God, it's really not that reason. It just feels that way because I'm old. This is a 15-year-old story. God help me. Oh, the passing of time. Yeah. This one is Beautiful People from Detective Comics number 821. The writer is Paul Dini. The art is by J.H. Williams III. The colors by John Collish. Letters by Jared K. Fletcher. Edits by Peter J. Tomasi and Mike Seglane. This is published in September of 2006. This is the first issue that Paul Dini wrote on his run on Detective that morphed into his run on Streets of Gotham. This is right after Infinite Crisis and the initial arc out of that that sort of set the new status quo, which is by earlier in this episode, writer James Robinson, before Dini took over Detective and Grant Morrison took over Batman. This is a pretty simple one-off mystery where the elite of Gotham are being robbed and Batman sort of has to go undercover as Bruce Wayne to these rich events to try to find who is behind these robberies. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Let me let me let me ask you this. Is J.H. Williams the best artist to not have a signature Batman run? And I, I know he's done some Batman. He's got an entire volume of collected like Batman works, but he doesn't seem to be talked about with the great Batman artist. And he's really fucking good. Between this and Batwoman, I mean, his books are just gorgeous to look at. I mean, Batwoman's stunning. He did a three-issue arc with Morrison, Club of Heroes. He was one of two artists. I believe it's him and Kelly Jones who did different chapters in Batman 550 because it was the lead-in to Williams' sort of breakout series chase and he's gotten a couple of other batman stories but yeah no he does not have a long run on batman it's probably him he oh he did a legend of the, uh, williams did a legend of the dark knight arc with i think doug mensch conspiracy but i think the artists who draw amazing batman who have never had a real long run on batman williams is there john cassidy they're two guys whose Batmans have hit me and are, you know, these sort of really important artists of the modern comic who don't have much Batman in their portfolio. But I mean, yeah, this is stunning. And I think Williams was supposed to do more of this run, but love the man, love his work. He's not exactly known for being speedy. And a <laughs> monthly book is is asking a lot of J.H. Williams the third. Yeah. At least one that doesn't have 
enough time that he's been able to bank half a dozen issues. Big mood there, J.H., big mood. Again, this is a a solid, fun little one-off story. The Williams art absolutely adds to it. I do get a kick. The opening narration of this book, it begins with an affluent woman of Gotham being robbed as she's about to get onto the commuter train. And it specifically calls out that the outfit she's wearing is timeless. It's kind of retro. It's not really of any particular era, which feels like a reference to that. No one is exactly sure when it takes placeness of Batman, the animated series that Paul Dini was one of the lead writers on. I'm just looking back over this and just look, I, I am not the best critic of comic book art said every comics book journalist ever um, yes. aside from the, aside from the really good ones, but A basic critique that I have that a lot of people have, so this is not some kind of genius insight, is if you're looking at a comic book and you look at those backgrounds and they're just plain, like seriously solid colors, to me that signifies an artist who is not great. Compare that with what Williams does here. There is something going on in the background of every panel. There's so much detail and it feels alive. There's this scene in Gordon's office and it's it's five panels on, on one page. And Williams takes the time to draw in this picture of Gordon on a fishing trip. It adds nothing to the story that they're telling, but it's just so nice to look at. Like it, it looks like a real office. It looks like a place that has been lived in. And I see so much art out there that's just like oh here's just a solid color that's a wall who cares just move on but i it's beautiful i I just again i love looking at this book but one weird thing one strange thing i swear bruce has about five different faces and outfits on his like undercover mission and i have no idea why the art there is not consistent but everything else in this issue is gorgeous. The backgrounds and design work in the Peregrinators Club, this gentleman's club, not in the soprano sense, but in the sort of Sherlock Holmes, Victorian London place where men went to smoke pipes and things is incredible. His bat cave, again, it's only in a couple of panels, but you can see the rivets in, in the steel floor, you can see every weird little detail. And that's phenomenal. The uh, Bruce goes to an art exhibition. You see like the weird models in the background for the, the exhibition. It's very, very cool. It's extra. And I appreciate that. The villain here is a guy who calls himself Facade. And he just has something against Gotham's wealthy. And he wears a, a reflective mask, similar to the now two Batman villains who've gone by the name of the Mirror. But again, Williams spends time with each time you see Facade in anything close to a close-up panel, and even some of the more distant panels, that mask isn't just mirrored, it's reflecting. He's actually taking the time to show what the mirror is reflecting. Again, that is an attention to detail that so many artists don't have. 
I also like when it comes to this one is a detective story, not so much a mystery. I mean, there is a mystery because you do see who Facade is and you can kind of track it. There is a little bit of a play fair to it, but you're more following Batman's logic. And this isn't one where he has to CSI the crime. He doesn't have to, you know, use the bat computer. He gets some evidence. He gets a receipt, figures out where the address of that place is, and then logically works from there. It's an actual deductive process versus wild bat science. I thought of of the three stories, it was the most detective-y. Yes. Yes, it is. It's got the most follow the cluesness of it. Dini tried to do that in his run on Detective Comics. Again, these his were mostly one or two issue stories until the sort of climactic six issue run that climaxed with uh, Detective 750. But they were a lot of one offs. This is when Dini took the Riddler and rehabilitated him a bit and made him Edward Nigma consulting detective, which worked really well and kept him as this sort of foil for Batman because he still wanted to prove that he was smarter than Batman, but he was doing it on the right side of the law, which was kind of neat. I had a question just for my own edification here. Sure. At what point are we in the uh, in the Batman Robin relationship? Because they seem to be a little estranged in this issue. This is a point where they probably should have been a little chummier because Bruce would have just recently offered to adopt Tim, and he would have just taken up on him on that. So he is at this point officially Bruce's son, but there is a lot of weird continuity here because the Robin title at this point, it was in a strange place. And you could assume that this takes place right after Batman and son. This comes out the same month as the first part of Batman and sons so of Damien's first appearance. If you place this after that, it makes a lot more sense because Bruce has now had this son who put the beat down pretty hard on Tim physically and who tried to steal the Robin persona. So you placing it there makes this make a bit more sense. But this is this is Tim Drake, though, right? This is Tim. This is right after. So theoretically, what would have happened in continuity, and I don't know if Dini knew this when he started writing this book, was that during 52, during that year where Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman were off the board, Bruce traveled the world with Tim Drake and Dick Grayson, sort of following the path he had followed as a younger man, re-upping his skills and letting Dick and Tim follow that path as well. But I don't know if Dini knew that. I don't know if Dini, because I don't know how much the creators of 52 had let the other writers who were doing stuff deal with. And also if he had Robinson scripts for face to face, where it was just revealed that Bruce had offered to adopt Tim. Interesting. 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 
Dini doesn't use Tim a lot in this run. He does one really fun Tim Drake story that doesn't have Batman. It's a flat out one off Tim Drake and Joker story that we will get to at some point, some point in December, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I I will say no more. But those of you out there who have read the particular story called Slay Ride, S-L-A-Y Ride, will remember this story distinctly. Well, you know, you say, you say, Matt, that we're going to get to it, but we're going to get to everything. Yes, we are. There are many, many, many stories, and we will get to them all. Because 100 years of Matt and Will. 100 years. 100 years. <laughs> I'm all for it. I think this episode might have been our most consistently good episode so far. We did not have a, a, a stinker in the bunch this time. I, I agree. You know, I'm a little soft on blades, but uh, Doomsday Book and Beautiful People, just fun reads. And uh, again, I can't, I can't say enough good things uh, about William's work. It's just so good to look at. And we're, we're going to add that Williams and Kelly Jones issue to the list. Um, and may, maybe it'll go in that episode that I put together. Woo-hoo. Oh, yeah. oh, that that would be a a good place for it. That's very early in William's career. And while he's not quite to this point yet, you can absolutely see where he's going to get. But we will talk about that when we talk about that issue in the not too distant future, I think. But I think it's time. Will put it on the board. All right. So where are we versus Doomsday Book? I think it's right there. Um, we, we can't do a push because that's not how lists work. So to me, it's either above or below. That We didn't talk a ton about the art in Doomsday Book. It's all very good. I mean, I love Alan Davis. Carmen Infantino is a legend. But for sheer just jaw-dropping art, I think I got to give the edge to beautiful people. No complaints. Weird Bruce Wayne facial expressions aside and weird Bruce Wayne clothes aside. My, my standards for how Bruce dresses are very, very high and few people meet that anyway. I do think that Deanie got Bruce Wayne pretty well. He was douchey enough in certain places, yet nice enough in others. Like he was good to the guy who is the club manager at the Paragrenators Club, but when he had to flirt with the the plant for this gang, he was just sleazy enough that you could picture, yeah, yeah, that's how a guy who's as trashy as Bruce Wayne tends to come off would be. Oh, he was very handsy. And uh, yeah, that was, that was a little cringy. So that is our three books for this week. Now that we we have planned the next few weeks, I think at the end of each episode, starting now, I will tease what we're going to be doing next week. Ooh, what are we doing next week, Matt? Next week, we will be having our first guest. Uh, I won't tell everyone who it is, but it is going to be someone that if you have any familiarity with me and Will's work elsewhere, it is a, a very familiar name and voice. And we will be discussing three all-ages Batman stories. Until then, you can follow me at MattLaz1013 on Twitter, 
where I talk about my three C's, comics, cinema, and my cats. And you can find Will. At Will Nevin. You can also visit Comics XF. Follow where, the brand. Yep. Where you can see our weekly Friday Bat Chat column, Roundup of New Bat Books, as well as other stuff Will and I are writing. And you can also, and this is something I've not mentioned in the previous three episodes, and I feel bad about that, find on Comics XF WMQ&A, the comic creators podcast interview that I co-host with my longtime best friend and editor, Dan Grote. All of that can be found at comicsxf.com or at comicsxf on Twitter. Will, thank you as ever for joining me. Once again, another fabulous evening and uh, three more books on that list. It's, it's slowly growing. Yes, indeed. So until next time, stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.